Today's scare comes as a man known as the Underwear Bomber appears in federal court in Detroit. Umar Farouk Abdul-Matalab is accused of trying to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009. Fox News' Amy Lang has more from outside federal court where a trial date has now been set. Amy. Yes, a trial date has been set, but it was actually more interesting to hear from a couple of the passengers who showed up here at court today who have a very interesting theory about what really happened. The U.S. government escorted him through security without a passport, and we believe gave him an intentionally defective bomb. It's a startling allegation from two local attorneys who were on board the 2009 Christmas Day flight to Detroit when Umar Farouk Abdul-Mutalib tried to blow up a bomb hidden in his underwear. Kurt and Lori Haskell think the U.S. government was behind the whole thing. It was intentional, and it went this far to further the war on terror to get body scanners in the airports. Uh, to increase the TSA's budget, to renew the Patriot Act, and whatever other reasons you want to list. The Haskells say in Amsterdam, before boarding the flight to Detroit, they witnessed Abdul Mutalib arguing with a ticket agent at the gate because he didn't have a passport, when a man in a tan suit with an American accent intervened. The ticket agent did not want to allow Mutalib on the flight, and this man was very insistent of it. And then she referred them to a manager down the hallway. They next saw Abdul Mutalib on board the plane when they saw fire and people screaming. Abdul Mutalib has insisted on representing himself in this case. The trial date's now been set for October 4th and could include up to 400 witnesses. It's a very, like I said, a very serious case with a lot of potential, a lot of evidence that has to be reviewed and a lot of witnesses which must be interviewed in order to properly prepare the case. That's Abdul Mutalib's standby attorney Anthony Chambers, although the judge has urged Abdul Mutalib to have Chambers represent him. So far, He's refused. I think that this is a case that we can help him with greatly. It's a very defensible case. And you just heard the standby attorney saying he thinks it's a very defensible case, of course, with Abdul Muttalib representing himself. It would be interesting to see just how well he can defend himself. They do say that he's been having some trouble getting access down at the Milan Correctional Facility. They're going to try and put a stop to that so that the standby attorney and Abdul Muttalib can speak and he can go over the evidence against him. So what you just heard was a Fox News report about the underwear bomber, an incident that happened on December 25th last year, 2010. And we actually got an exclusive interview with Kurt Haskell, the guy that you heard in the clip, um, the key eyewitness to the underwear bombing incident, and he's going to be on the show right now. You know, let's just start by talking about who you are and what kind of law you practice. Sure. Uh, I'm Kurt Haskell. I'm an attorney. My office is in Taylor, Michigan. It's a suburb of Detroit. And I uh, run a law office with my wife, who's my partner here. And I do mostly bankruptcy work, and she does mostly divorce work. We've had our office together. A couple of weeks will be 10 years. Nice. When all this started, we were actually on a vacation. We were on a safari in Africa, coming back, flying through Amsterdam. You know, we flew from Uganda to Kenya and then to Amsterdam, mm -hmm. and we were sitting on the floor playing cards by the gate. So you guys had already uh, checked in at this point. Yeah, we checked in. We went through security. Mm -hmm. And in Amsterdam, you go through security at the gate instead of here in Detroit, you do it uh, before you get into any of the gates. But there you do it actually at your gate. Mm -hmm. and so you're just in a group of people that are on your flight only, and you can't go from gate to gate, flight to flight. You're just with people at uh, on your flight, and we went through security. There were two seats together available anywhere, just one seat, you know, here and there. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to 
to sit together. So we sat on the floor by the gate and we were playing cards. And what I saw was uh, an African, I thought he was a teenager, looked kind of young to me, mm-hmm. with a uh, wealthy looking, what I would describe as an Indian man from India. He looked like he was maybe around 50 or so wearing a tan suit. And they walked up to the to the desk together to talk to the, the uh, ticket agent uh, who was standing at uh, a desk right before the um, the walkway where you get on the plane. And only the Indian man talked. The African man wasn't talking at all. And what he said was, uh, this man needs to get on the plane, but he doesn't have a passport. And then she said, well, you need to get a passport. You need to have a passport to get on the plane. And the Indian man then kind of argumentatively said to her, well, he's from Sudan. We do this all the time trying to convince her this was some sort of normal thing. And she then still wouldn't let him on the plane, and she referred them down a hallway and appointed, oh, you're going to need to talk to my manager or something like that, and pointed the two of them down a hallway. And then they walked down this hallway together, still in a secure area. This hallway is secure, too. Uh, I don't think anyone else would have been allowed down this hallway. She didn't go with them. She just pointed. So... They went down the hallway together, and I didn't see them together again. And then about eight hours later, the what I thought was an African teenager tried to blow up her plane as we were coming into land in Detroit. When you, when you said that he was he didn't have a passport when he went to the desk, that's uh-huh. I thought you couldn't even get at that point in an airport without having a passport if you're going on an international flight. Yeah, you're right. In I mean, Amsterdam, they do they do it at the gate though. But yes, you're right. We were past that point. I mean, you you so had already I, shown your passport to someone. Yep. See, that's yep, very interesting. Right. I mean, I mean, how could? I mean, we'll get into that later. But I just wanted to mm-hmm. you know make that clarification before you continue. But go on. Yeah, you're right. Like I was saying, we had already gone through security and into a secure area. So that you're right. That was highly suspicious. Now I didn't see him going through security. All I saw was this later point of him walking with this man in tan suit. So what I suspect happened is that it was discovered that he didn't have a passport at, at security and somehow this man in tan suit interjected in it a means to get him on the flight. I didn't see that part of it, but that's, uh, you know, I don't know any other explanation there. Sure. Um, what, what's also kind of interesting is the man in the tan suit did not have a security uniform on. He had on a suit and all other security personnel had a uniform on. And uh, he went to the desk saying, we do this all the time. That's a word-for-word word quote. We do this all the time. Well, who is we? Yeah, right. You know, if we're if we're to believe the U.S. government that Al Qaeda is behind this plot, they're not going to a counter and saying we do this all the time, obviously. <laughs> and uh, the man spoke uh, English, perfect English. I didn't detect any accent at all. So to me, he had an American accent, and. You know, I also question how they're allowed to walk down this secure hallway by themselves instead of someone escorting them down the hallway. So obviously this man in tan suit had some sufficient authority, uh, which I believe was a member of the U.S. government of some sort or an agent of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I have a lot of other information to back that up sure so at the time you you and your wife Lori were just kind of like that's very peculiar that you know this strange man is you know kind of trying to get this guy on the flight but then the next thing you remember is just the guy on the flight and that actually happening you didn't see anything happen between 
seeing that at the ticket counter and then actually being on the flight? No, I didn't see anything at all. And actually, you know, when it happened, it wasn't very peculiar peculiar either. It's only become that way looking back at it. Because sure. to me, this is just, oh, ho-hum, this guy's not going to get on a flight. I'll never see him again. Right. That sort of thing. Right. You know? It, at the time, it meant absolutely nothing to me. It looked like some poor African kid, you know? You know, I feel bad for him. He's not going to Detroit in Christmas. <laughs> that, that sort of thing. I didn't even tell my wife about it, what I had witnessed, because it was didn't mean anything sure, to, them, sure. to me then. So, no, I didn't see him again. Neither, neither one of us did, but Lori didn't see him the first time either. And then um, as we're coming down into Detroit um, for, for our descent, the pilot came on the loudspeaker and said, flight crew take your seats, we're coming in for a landing. And one of the uh, flight attendants walked by my seat and said, something smells like smoke and that got me to look up i had been watching the flight monitor on the back of the seat in front of me before that so i looked up and i could see smoke coming up eight rows up on the left so this was at the uh, end of the flight yeah we were coming in to land Mm -hmm. and uh you know i could see smoke and fire coming up from eight rows up on the left and there was a bit of a skirmish um not really a fight just kind of people jumping around and you know i could see something out of the corner of my eye being hauled off into the first class area but i wasn't really watching that i was watching the fire and the smoke to me that you know that was the important thing my flight's going to burn up here and i'm going to die so i wasn't really watching that but there wasn't any kind of a fight there was no yelling there was no screaming um by the bomber i didn't know he was the bomber at this point but he, he didn't make a sound at all other people were screaming you know terrorists uh someone get water over here and that sort of thing or just flat out screaming and uh, yeah a flight attendant grabbed the fire extinguisher and ran over and put the, the fire out pretty quickly maybe in a minute maybe not even that long so it all took place very very quickly wow uh, and then and then the pilot came back on and said emergency landing on the loudspeaker. And, and you could feel our plane speed up instead of slow down. Oh, my God. And uh, we landed. I'm thinking, you know, the chutes are going to open, the emergency doors and everything. Yeah. No, none of that. We, instead, we taxied all the way to the terminal as if you're on a regular flight. We get there. The police, the FBI come on the plane. They all go in the first class area. They're telling everyone to shut up and sit down, stay in your seats. And they made us sit there for 20, 30 more minutes as they're all in the first class area, not checking on anyone else or any of the other sections to see if there's an accomplice, another bomb or anything. And then I see the, the underwear bomber being escorted off in handcuffs then. He stood in the aisle for maybe 20, 30 seconds, and I got a good look at him, and I realized that was the same guy that I saw before we boarded in Amsterdam. Was this the first time you realized that he was on the plane with you or, or did you, were you already kind of yeah. aware? Okay. No, I wasn't aware at all. Um, and you know, I wasn't even thinking about what I saw before we boarded at all until this point. And then I was, I turned to my wife and I said, wow, I think I might've witnessed something important in Amsterdam. You know, it just kind of hit me all at once. Wow. You know, this guy tried to blow us up. Before this, we weren't even sure it was a terrorist attack. We thought it might have been just kind of an right. electrical fire or something. Right. Because there was no yelling by um, the underwear bomber. There was no screaming, no fighting. 
nothing like that. So we didn't really even know if this was a fluke thing. But obviously when he's escorted off in handcuffs by the FBI, we knew, you know, it was some sort of terrorist attack. Sure. And, and right. you know, obviously you had, um, you kind of came to the realization as you saw him that, wow, I, I witnessed something, you know, in in the Amsterdam airport that was kind of odd and piecing it together. When did you first come out and start um, telling telling the media, you know, what you had seen? Um, and and were you interviewed immediately and by the police or, or what happened after that? Okay. Well, what happened next, there's a couple other strange things that happened before we got to that point. Okay. We sat at the terminal on the plane with a bomb on the plane for 20 or 30 minutes. Again, no one's checking for accomplices. No one's checking for other bombs. And this bomb was a chemical bomb, which was spread all over the flight, or a few rows of it anyway. Dangerous, or you would think, but nobody was concerned about that. Um, After they took the bomber off, then they took the rest of us off, allowing us to take our carry-on bags. And there's a point I'm making to all this. Mm -hmm. Allowing us to take our carry-on bags off, and they... They take us all into a baggage claim area that was evacuated and make us stand all together in an area for about an hour. Then the FBI brings in bomb-sniffing dogs after about an hour, and one of them sniffed something in the bag of another man. Uh, The dog sat down by the bag, which is an indication that he's found explosives. This man was then taken away by the FBI for about an hour in a side room where they questioned him. He wasn't handcuffed yet. But when they came out after an hour, the FBI handcuffed him and took him away and then made an announcement to the rest of us saying, this area is not safe. I'm sure you've seen what has just happened here. We now need to take you to another room to make sure you're safe. And we're all taken out of this evacuated room into a hallway then at this point. So, so, so for two hours, they let you stay in a room with potential explosives, so they say. And then, then after that, they tell you it's not safe. Yes. And uh, took another man into custody. Not, don't wow. forget that. Uh, so then we're in this hallway for about another three hours or so, four hours. And the who seemed to be the head person came up and made an announcement. He said, we believe we have those responsible for this in custody. Those, not the man. Those, plural. And he said, we're going to do quick interviews of each of you, and then you'll be free to go. Uh we then went back to the original evacuated baggage claim area and did interviews and left. And that's when I first told the FBI what I had witnessed in Amsterdam. And they seemed kind of interested at that point. Uh, I did an interview with just one FBI agent, and he was so interested he called over another one to sit in on to listen to what I was saying. And then we left. So that's when I first told them. It was the first chance I had. Mm-hmm. I don't think I told the media to the till the next day. We were pretty shook up. Right. And we just kind of wanted to go home. We had flown for over 20 hours, and then we're held in customs six hours on Christmas Day. So we kind of just wanted to go home at that point. Sure. Yeah. And, and then the next day, the um, I made a comment on an online website about being on uh, the flight and some of the things I witnessed. And I immediately got a call from a reporter at the at the website. And it's MLive.com, and I did an interview for them. They put on their website, and then I started getting calls from all over the, the world, mm-hmm. really, to do interviews and uh, TV and radio and that sort of thing. 
And did the mainstream media pick up on your aspect of the story? I saw that you were, um, you know, that one, what was it, a, a local Fox News um, base in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, has, has any other mainstream media picked up on this, on this aspect of the story? Well, it, it's interesting. I was all over the mainstream media for about two weeks until President Obama came out and made his speech giving the official version, version which was, oh, we failed to connect the dots which my story directly contradicts, uh, and then the mainstream media would not talk to me after that at all. Wow. Until the video you're referencing, was, which was by uh, a Fox affiliate here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. I believe it was in late January of this year. Okay, so once the trial's going and now the story's getting picked up again. But... Yeah, the, well, the trial's not actually until October, but okay. we, my wife and I went to a, a, a settlement conference, a preliminary hearing, if you will, mm-hmm. and we did an interview for, I believe it was seven. I, I read some transcripts that you had written about just your feelings about this event, and it said that mm-hmm. you it changed your mind completely about the government, about the war on terror. I guess speak a little bit about, was this the first instance where you you know, we're kind of awakened to this manufactured side of the war on terror. Um, had you been skeptical before about any of the events like the, you know, the Sears Tower foiled plot, um, mm-hmm. any of the, the anthrax attacks, I mean, even 9-11 itself, had you ever had questions about any of that? And, and how do you feel now? Um, well, I'd say before this happened, my opinion was I, I didn't know on some of these events. How I thought, you know, I thought there was evidence both ways on some of these things, and I just didn't know what to believe. But after going through this, and there's a lot more evidence to to support what my theory is that the government, my theory is that the government intentionally put them on the plane with an intentionally defective bomb to stage a fake terrorist attack. Um, and I have a lot of evidence to back that up. But a lot of it I've uh, come across since this has happened. You know, initially I thought I was just helping in the investigation, sure. thinking I'm helping the government catch an accomplice. But what I've learned over the past 15 months since this has happened is that the government and the media don't care about this, and they don't care about it because they know I'm right, and they know they have to cover up their involvement in this plot. Otherwise, the American public will throw a fit. Uh, you know, that the government is subjecting its own citizens to these dangerous fake terror plots. So I guess my opinion has changed dramatically, but not just not right away. It's developed over the last 15 months. And and what do you think about the war? I mean, do you think that other elements of the war on terror are completely sensationalized and manufactured as well? I mean, it seems like you know, the the Christmas tree bomber was also kind of facilitated by an, the FBI. It seems like all of these people, the FBI is involved in some way or another. I think the entire war on terror is a fraud. Yeah. All of it. All of it. 100%. Now, I think, I think what is being done is the FBI or CIA is uh, taking these deranged people that they know are deranged and they're posing as members of Al-Qaeda, and they're convincing these deranged people that they should be part of Al-Qaeda for whatever reason and uh, providing them with all the means, opportunity, the bombs, whatever they need to pull out these plots. And if it wasn't for the FBI or CIA, these 
people would be just unknown. They wouldn't be terrorists. They'd just be nobodies. So that's and interesting. They're, they're oh. using this to stage a propaganda campaign to stage two illegal wars, uh, produce body scanning machines, keep the Patriot Act renewed, uh, you know, produce more weapons for the military industrial complex, and I'm sure a host of all of other reasons. That's interesting that you said you think that, you know, that he or, or these other people could be deranged. Um, cause we were, mm-hmm. w- when we were reading this story about it, it says that he, ch- he's chosen to defend himself in court, which, yeah. you know, which doesn't necessarily mean he's deranged, but it, it definitely seems to be that way. I mean, it, it's what, I mean, are you, are you kind of curious how this trial is going to play out? Do you, are you allowed to, um, go to the trial and witness it for yourself or I mean, I, I don't know what, you know, what stage you said it, there was some sort of pre-trial hearing or something. What, mm-hmm. What's, what's the, what's the next step? And are you going to try to, you know, witness this? Um, yeah, to say I'm interested in the trial is a big understatement. I think, <laughs> um, I've done everything in my power to tell the American people my story, um, including trying to get involved in the trial. Um, but what's interesting is that, well, there's a lot of interesting things with the trial. Uh, he had attorneys, he had court appointed attorneys. He fired them. Uh, <laughs> Umar Farouk is Abdul Mutlap is who I'm talking about. I'll just tell him the underwear bomber. Yeah. But, uh, he fired his attorneys to represent himself. And, uh, he got into an, an argument with the judge at the last hearing that lasted about 20 minutes where Judge Edmonds was trying to tell him he needs to have an attorney, and he kept saying, no, 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 I'm going to represent myself. And, um, again, I think that's just part of the plan, because if he represents himself, well, he can leave out key evidence, he can leave out key witnesses that he'll just not know enough to call, and the real story will be suppressed. I think it's all a big setup. Yeah, I mean, it, and you know, I don't know if he's being threatened with something or being promised with something, but I think one of the two is a logical explanation on why he's representing himself. Yeah, and 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 one of the first things that comes to my mind about representing yourself, especially someone like him, is that it's it almost seems like he's destined to fall on his own sword, and he's going to look look crazy. I mean, to everybody. There's in the no court. doubt. There's no doubt. There's you know, I don't even know if I would be competent enough to do a trial like <laughs> yeah. that. You know, I'm an attorney, but I'm not someone that's really experienced in, in criminal cases like this, yet alone someone like him who isn't even fluent in English, that yeah. has, doesn't know the legal system, doesn't know anything. There, there's no way. It's impossible that he'll represent himself adequately. Yeah, I mean, and and you briefly mentioned before, you know, your your political beliefs before this all happened. Um, my brother and I have kind of been thinking that the war on terror is complete bullshit ever since finding out some some stuff about nine eleven that didn't make sense. Um, so we've been following this for a while, but um, looking back now after kind of being awakened to this paradigm, are you are you seeing other things just about nine eleven and the anthrax attacks that are kind of questionable to you? Oh, sure. You know, because now I watched this, this fake, uh, this false flag, if you will, that's right. what it was, play out before my eyes. And, it, you know, it's been very strange because I've known the truth. 
for a long time, since very early on after this happened. And I watched the government come out and put out false statements to the press, and I see how the the, the uh, stories played out with the press, and I see how they take step by step, putting out propaganda videos. One of, you know, the underwear bomber shooting a rifle out in the desert. <laughs> Real interesting. <laughs> you know, another one of a picture of his passport, which I know was probably created after the flight, uh, which is another complete joke. Another one of his underwear completely intact after this huge fire in his underwear, which, you know, is another made-up picture, but, you know, they know what they're doing. Pictures speak a thousand words, and they do, because people see these on the news, they believe it. Right, or an image-based... pictures are are easily fake. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, to see these sort of things play out before me, when I know the truth, yeah, that has caused me to go back and question really everything. I don't believe anything the government says at this point. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Um, so so let's get to the, the grit of, you know, why are they trumping this up? You know, th- the whole Al-Qaeda network linked together sleeper cell thing is one thing. It seemed like they need to keep propping up these these quote unquote terrorists every year to keep reminding us why they need to ramp up the war on terror. Like you said in that interview, propping up the TSA's budget, um, yeah. the body scanners. I mean, this was really the catalyst for body scanners, the Christmas, the, the, um, you know, the, the, the yeah. underwear bomber. I'm sorry. There's the been so many, the, the Christmas scanner. tree bomber. I'm like trying to keep track here. <laughs> yeah. It's the sole reason for the body scanners. If you ask anyone what the reason for the body scanners is, they point back to this flight, the underwear bomber flight. So, you know, it wouldn't be too difficult to imagine a scenario when someone would fake a terrorist attack to make millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars you know, via the body scanning machine. So um, it's not like anybody was killed in this plot. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you look at the uh, so-called terrorist attacks we've had, the Portland Christmas tree bomber, the Wrigley Field bomber, this case, they're all provided fake bombs by the government. Are are there really any terrorists at all? Right, and then they're propped up. Yeah. Even if you believe the official story 9-11, which I don't, but let's just say someone does, then there were no legitimate terrorist attacks in the last 10 years in the United States. So you can see the obvious need to create them to justify all these huge expenditures on this war on terror. Absolutely. People are going to start questioning why we have these huge expenditures if there's no terrorist attacks. Right, and our defense budget's going up annually 9% per year, so we need to have some sort of justification for that increase constantly. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's a lot of other reasons, too, that support this being a false flag. I don't know if you want me to get into them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please. But, you know, people listening to me now might just say, oh, this guy's some sort of nut. He has no evidence. But I actually do have a lot of evidence supporting that this was a set-up plot, not just what I witnessed. But um, you mentioned the Portland Christmas tree bomber who was given a fake bomb by the, the FBI, and they admitted that. They did that with the Wrigley Field bomber, too. So it's not a, you don't have to take a great leap to realize, you know, maybe they did it in this case, too. So, I mean, you have that. You have their tendency to do this. <laughs> um, you have the standby attorney of the underwear bomber. He doesn't have an attorney, but 
Judge Edmonds has appointed a standby attorney saying that this guy will be his attorney if he decides he wants to have an attorney. Anthony Chambers is his name. Mm -hmm. And he's come out and made statements indicating that the government's own experts uh, have said that this was uh, a bomb that was impossibly defective. It could not have exploded. So you take a look at that and compare that to the official theory that he flew to Yemen, had this bomb sewn into this underwear, went back to Nigeria, Amsterdam, and then to the U.S. Well, obviously, if you're going to do all that, you're going to make sure you have a bomb that works. Yeah. Now, <laughs> if he has a bomb that doesn't work, that points to a setup, in my opinion, anyway. And you have the government's own experts saying this. So not people hired by the defense. They're hired by the prosecution. So you have that, um, you know, and you have what I mentioned earlier, the, the plane taxis to the gate. Why is it taxiing to the gate when there's a bomb on board? You know, it's evidence that the pilot knew that there was no threat. You have us sitting on the runway for 20 to 30 minutes with a bomb on board. So the FBI knew there was no further threat. You have us standing with all our carry-on bags for an hour in the terminal. So they knew there was a threat there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had us stand with our bags. Um, you have the government and the media's cover-up of the man in the pantsuit I saw before boarding that helped uh, the underwear bomber on the flight. There's no video being released of that, even though the Amsterdam airport has more security cameras than any airport in the world. Uh, the government says all the video shows nothing, which is a complete lie. Just like the Pentagon. Sure. Just like the <laughs> Pentagon in 9-11. There's no video. Uh, and you have the government lying five times about the second man taken into custody. Um, I detailed this on my blog for anyone that's interested, but... The government initially said this guy didn't exist. No one else was taken into custody. And then, you know, I, I came out to the media and said, yeah, he does. And other people on the flight said, yeah, we saw this too. And then they kept changing their story to, oh, yeah, someone else was taken into custody, but it was an immigration violation. You know, and as I told you earlier, it was a bomb-sniffing dog that found explosives in his bag. So that was a lie. And then I pointed out to the media that was a lie. And then the government came out, came out and said, oh, but he was from another flight. And then I came out to the media and said, well, that was impossible because no one else was allowed near us. The entire floor we were on was evacuated. And they did this five times. They changed their story five times. So there's an, uh, an obvious uh, attempt here to not let anyone discover who that man was. And have you seen that man again um, on any reports or, I mean, has no. he? Okay. And so what is the final official story from the media and government about the second man? Is that the about immigration the thing? Guy? Mm -hmm. You know, I think they just say it was some big mistake. And, uh, you know, they took someone into custody by accident. He was released later that day. I think that's the final version. Version number six, I think it is. <laughs> Interesting. But, um, there was also people on our flight who reported someone getting out a camcorder before the started videotaping the whole thing from before it started all the way through until after it ended. And, uh, obviously you don't do that when you think your flight's <laughs> going up in flames and you're going to die. Yeah. Taking a picture of it or filming it's the last thing on your mind. Trust me. I wasn't thinking about getting out my camera. I was thinking about <laughs> if I was going to be alive in a few minutes. So, 
you know, how do you explain that? Uh, you know, I don't think you do. Um, so you have that, and then you have the government, back to the man in the tan suit, the government said it reviewed over 200 hours of video from the airport, and it shows nothing. But then three weeks later, after they made that official statement to the press, there was an ABC News article that said, um, oh, now we're attempting to identify that man. We were we initially discounted passenger accounts, but now we're trying to attempt to identify that man. It was the only story on that anywhere where they admitted his existence. Uh, January 22nd, 2010, ABC News article. Um, so they admitted it um, only once. No other uh, newspaper or TV station ever reported it, and there's been no discussion of it since. Uh, and then you have the hearings in Congress where uh, a member of the State Department, uh, Patrick Kennedy was his name, pretty much came out and said, hey, we were tracking this guy as a terrorist. We, um, we wanted him to come into the U.S. so we could track him and catch bigger fish, uh, people he would come into contact to in the U.S. So you have admissions, not saying they put him on the plane intentionally with a fake bomb, but something very similar where they said they're tracking him and they didn't want to stop him from coming into the U.S. You know, one step from admitting they put him on the plane, you know, with a fake bomb. So you have all these things, you know, and and there's more than that even. You know, obviously they had uh, a determination to put the body scanners in the airport, so how do you do that? If you have right. a real terrorist attack, you're not going to know the bomb was in the guy's underwear. So you need a failed one. Exactly, right? exactly. You need a failed one. So that's exactly why it was in his underwear. Yeah, first it was and like why it, why it failed. Exactly. At first it was the the shoe bomber. We started just incrementally, you know, get, conditioning ourselves to to get to this point. Right. Exactly. And um, you know, something else interesting happened at the last hearing too. The government fought against releasing all the evidence from the underwear bomber's first lawyers that he fired being released to the standby lawyer, who's not his official lawyer yet, he's the standby. They fought for him to not have the evidence because uh, if it would have been provided to him, other parties could have subpoenaed it because he doesn't have the attorney-client privilege yet because he's only a standby attorney. If, if that makes sense to you, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking too much legalese, but um, w when documents are provided to someone's attorney, they only have to release what they want to release to other people. Mm -hmm. But uh, if the documents were provided to the standby attorney, for instance, I could have sent a subpoena and gotten them and then sued. So why would the government want, not want those uh, subject to subpoena by somebody else? Because they're hiding something. That's, and that's a good point. Uh, what, what Judge Edmonds finally decided was that only the underwear bomber himself will see that evidence, and he gets to decide what he wants to show to the standby attorney. Oh, so wow. again, you have this, it's almost like a cloak over the underwear bomber where no one can talk to him. Um, you know, he's going to be representing himself. So they have it set up perfectly where none of this evidence is going to come out. It kind of reminds me in a way of, I don't know if you, you remember back to, I think it was like 2007 when Masawi, the supposed 20th hijacker was, was, um, was defending himself in court. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, I mean, it kind of rings, it's, it stinks to high heaven kind of in a similar way where it's, 
it's if you if you let these you know one of these these guys defend themselves in court, they will end up looking crazy and lose any support from any jury. I mean, that's just my you know I'm not I'm not a lawyer or I haven't really sat in on any trials before, but that's just my kind of naive opinion on it. Yeah, you know, I if he had an attorney, all of this would come out, and he'd have a legitimate entrapment defense. But he doesn't. There's and there's no way on earth he's going to know how to present an entrapment defense. There's just not. It's impossible. You know, how is he going to interview witnesses? How is he going to collect documents? He's sitting in a prison, right? You know, by himself without an attorney, not knowing anything. And Kurt, um, are you? going to serve as a witness i mean have you been kind of stonewalled in the trial process i mean i know that you said you've been really you know fighting to to be involved have they Mm -hmm. told you that you're able to be a witness on trial oh i'm for sure able the question is is anybody going to call me right (laughs) and i can tell you the prosecution doesn't want me anywhere near the courtroom sure they're not going to call me and uh i have talked to to the standby attorney on a couple occasions and if he's appointed his attorney, uh, I will be a witness, I think, anyway. I'm pretty sure. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's going to represent himself and not call me. So I don't think I'll be a witness. Yeah. And have you been hassled by, by anyone since coming out? I mean, you've been pretty vocal about, about all of this. Have you gotten any any sort of threats or no. been visited by you know, I had one. I had one person call me about a week after this happened someone from the flight saying, uh, you know, I don't think you saw what you saw, and I think you're going to look stupid when the truth comes out. Uh, I think what you saw was a minor being taken through security by a security guard. And, um, you know, I asked this person, well, did you see it? And he said, no. But, <laughs> but I saw a minor after we landed in Detroit with a security guard, and I was like, okay, that's not what I saw, but all right. And then... Um, you know, I looked into it a little more, and I found out you have to be 11 or younger to have a security guard take you, uh, you know, to escort you on a flight to another country. And, and the bomber doesn't look like he's 11. You know, maybe he looks like he's a late teenager. But um, Do you think that was I a friendly... Found out, I then found out the caller works for a company that gets 80% of its business from the U.S. State Department. Or, I'm sorry, Department of Defense. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't really surprised when I found that out. So, um, but being hassled, you know, come out and saying, "Hey, don't talk about this" or whatever. No, nothing like that. It's more they just know that they the, can under the radar. Yeah. yeah, sort of thing. I mean, you I can talk another... all you want, but if no one's reporting on it, then you know they know that that's how they can just squander the, the story or squelch it rather. Yeah, you would think this would be a huge, huge story and that the press would do investigating reporting in it and they talked to the ticket agent, the manager in Amsterdam Airport and, uh, you know, demand that the video be released. Nothing. Nothing. So what does this and reveal they, to you about, about the media and their role? The, the, all the media does is report what the government tells it. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's what I figured out. They don't do... Uh, they don't look into anything themselves at all. I don't think it's so much that they're, you know, in on a conspiracy or anything. They just say, that's what the government says. That's what we're going to report. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the boards of directors of the the biggest media conglomerates, they're all politicians and people who are working in in the defense industry as well. So, you know, it's not too much of a stretch to just say, you know, it's in their best interest to kind of keep, keep the story straight to make the most money. 
I mean, it's, it's a sick, twisted uh, reality, but it's, you know, it's the truth. Yeah, that, that's basically what I've discovered about the media. You know, I was actually shocked when Fox aired that video of me at the courthouse in January. I, I actually told them when I was doing the interview that none of you will air this. You know, I interviewed with seven different people. <laughs> and I said, you know, I'll talk to you, but none of you are, are going to air what I'm going to say. And uh, Fox was the only one that did, and I was really shocked. Not only that, but they came to my office the next day to do another interview, a sit-down interview, and you can watch that one, too. So really kind of surprising to me. Well, yeah, and that goes along with, you know, Fox seems to have kind of changed their tune after Obama got elected. And I'm wondering if they're just trying to keep up this this propped up paradigm of the, the Democrats versus the Republicans. It seems like Fox is like they used to be the worst in their coverage. And now they're kind of the like just the most I don't know, just the most truthful. I mean, in a, in a weird sense. I don't know. What do you what do you think about that in the post Obama era of just like the news? You know, I don't know. Actually, I don't really watch the news because I know it's just a bunch of nonsense. So mm. I can't really comment on if it's different or not because I don't watch any of it. Okay, yeah. I get all my news. I get all my news from the internet. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I guess what I was saying is that Fox News is kind of the only um, organization right now, media, mainstream media organization, that's talking about the TSA body scanners. That's talking about kind of this as a civil liberties issue, which is just interesting how they change their tune it's almost like they're just trying to keep up that just the infighting between parties when really it's an issue that everyone should be caring about you know i mean civil liberties this tsa thing obviously it doesn't matter what what party you belong to this is this is completely you know outrageous so it's just it is is, interesting but yeah yeah i you know i can't really comment on fox news i Mm. can't can't Mm. watch it in a long long time so but um yeah, I mean, even if people think, oh, well, all I have to do now is go through a body scanner. No, it's a lot more than that. <laughs> you know, you're giving up your Fourth Amendment rights to be free of unreasonable search and seizure. So where is that going to be applied next? Is it going to be uh, where you have to go through a body scanner to get in a shopping mall, mm-hmm. to go to a school, yeah. uh, to get on a bus, I, to go I, to a sporting I, event? I think what's coming next is uh, is like data cloning. Like you'll whenever you go through a customs checkpoint or airport they'll just like clone your hard drive or your ipod or whatever just to have it in like a database and then <laughs> and then have you go through but uh, yeah you know i don't know it's getting it's getting really scary in this country it reminds me of uh early 1930s germany mm-hmm. now one of the last questions here i wanted to ask you kind of a more opinion-based question most people consider when they think of the war on terror they think of the Bush era, you know, kind of a holdover from the Bush era. He owned the war on terror. He kind of launched it. And I don't think enough people or not very many people look at the war on terror now as something that Obama wears as kind of a badge of honor. They almost think, well, he has to, you know, kind of follow up on this thing that was started. But what is your take on, you know, the Obama administration's um, propping up of this of this myth or the specter boogeyman of um of al-qaeda in this country what do i think of it yeah i mean do you think that obviously if the obama administration wanted to tell the truth they would not be going through with these fake terrorist attacks so (laughs) obviously they want to continue what was established under bush um but obviously they want to do it without killing any people 
yeah. uh, like what happened on 9-11, which is why you're seeing all these failed terrorist attacks. You're seeing a lot of terrorist attacks, but they're all failing uh, intentionally, in my opinion. Just the, gov- the, the goal is not to kill people. The goal is to keep the U.S. public in fear in order to take rights away from them. So you can clearly see that's what's going on with Obama. Um, you know, it's a continuation of Bush's policies, but, you know, unfortunately, on 9-11, we lost, what, 3,000 people. But I don't think the Obama administration thinks it really needs to kill anyone to scare them. And Except in the Middle I East. I think they're right. <laughs> I think they're right. Only in the Middle East. Yeah, only in the Middle East do they kill people. And then, uh, I... Um, I, I forgot to ask this earlier on, but there's there's another supposed terrorist who ties into the underwear bomber plot um, that I don't know if you're familiar with. I mean, you probably are. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the the cleric, I think he's Yemen, uh, Yemeni. His name is Alwaki, and supposedly yep. he mentored or instructed the underwear bomber and Abdul Hassan, the guy who shot up the the military base. Now, what what have you what have you found out about that guy, and and what is his supposed connection to the underwear bomber? Alaki. Well, I'm sure he has no connection in reality. Yeah. But what what they tell you is that he trained him or whatever. Well, it's, so entire war on terror is a lie. So anything <laughs> the government says about it is a lie. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think he's from the U.S. or a U.S. citizen. I'll, yes, I don't yes, know he that is much a U.S. citizen. Him. Yeah, I think he uh, has spent time in meetings in the in the Pentagon. Yep. Okay, so that tells <laughs> me all I need to know. That's that's a perfect way to answer it. Yeah, that's all I need to know. <laughs> so, as an attorney, Kurt, I mean. What can we do now? It seems like our rights are already kind of stripped. The Patriot Act is now being proposed to be renewed for three year, you know, a three year extension. It just seems like all these highly controversial things, even, you know, in our post 9-11 world, right after 9-11, it was still a highly debated topic, the Patriot Act. Now it just seems like it's commonplace. Um, How do we, you know, I, I guess I'm just kind of shouting out a plea. I mean, what the hell can we do? I don't think there's I don't think there's anything we can do. Yeah. In in my opinion, and trust me, I've tried to do some things over the past <laughs> months. You know, thinking that you know maybe I can have a voice to change some things. And if anybody can, you know, I would think I can, an attorney sure. and an eyewitness to a false flag. But you can see how I've been stonewalled, and honestly, I don't think. Um, enough people have awakened in the U.S. Um, you know, almost everyone thinks that these, the war on terror is legitimate. And so you get at least half the U.S. population believing that it's a total fraud, we're not going to get anywhere. And I don't know what it would take for that to happen. It's going to take more than word of mouth, I think. Um, you know, even if you put the evidence right in front of people, they'll say, well, what about 9-11? Yeah. You know, what about the underwear bomber or <laughs> all these other plots? What about these bombs I see going off the Middle East? Muslims are crazy. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think there's anything we can do. I think it's going to cause a, it's either going to cause a civil war in the U.S. or it's going to cause World War III, where the military-industrial complex can make you more money off more weapons, more bombs. So um, I don't know. It's going to be a, a a uh, very bad ending to this. Yeah, and, I, I... You know, even... 
I don't even think these truth movements have any chance of succeeding. You know, as much as I think they're good, I think they have absolutely no chance of succeeding at all. Yeah, I mean, when we're stonewalled at every at every way we turn, it's a little bit hard to see the light in this. And you know, we're facing a, a pretty big beast right now. We're facing the military-industrial complex. It's been around for decades, and our commodity is war. So, just like yeah. You know, during the Red Scare, we needed to prop up the, the threat of communism completely manufactured. And now it's the same thing. It's, it seems like we need these external threats to just justify uh, the perpetuation of our, of our wars and of our defense industry. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see any end to it. I see, you know, as I think it was John McCain or something said, the war on terror could go on forever. So yeah, I think that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, um, I got to let you go in a couple sure, minutes. Sure. I have. I have four minutes I can stand, but I, I just got back from uh, Berlin, Germany. I went there on vacation a month ago and I went through a lot of the museums. there, looking at world war two things and seeing stories and, you know, newspaper articles and this and that. And I think the U S right now is a direct parallel to 1930s Germany. Exactly. You just switch out the parties, Jews, Muslims, what's even Hitler military industrial complex. Reichstag fire, 9-11. Yeah. You can go on and on and on. I could list probably 30 things. It's, yeah. it's a total reincarnation of Germany in the 1930s, if you ask me, right down the line. And I think it's the military-industrial complex just looking at that and saying, hey, this works. We're going to steal their playbook. And that's where we're at. Yeah, we already have the Nazi propagandists uh, kind of <laughs> guiding our whole media policy right now. So, yeah, I mean, we've We've definitely adopted that whole psychological warfare aspect of, of the, the Nazis. And we already know with Operation Paperclip, we've had an, a lot of Nazi scientists over here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And it, and it is really terrifying. And it's even more terrifying to be living under the guise of a democracy and a free state because it's harder to, to kind of awaken people and rattle them to that this is all a facade. Right. And just like in the 1930s, the Germans just thought, hey, Jews are bad, but they didn't know the extent the government was going to and, you know, executing people. And, um, you know, I could see that happen, not in such an overt way, but the total destruction of Muslim countries where people are killed off in masses and that sort of thing uh, happening with the U.S. And, you know, Germany was broke in the 1930s. The U.S. was broke. How did Germany get out of being broke in the 1930s and become a superpower for a few years? Started wars with other countries, invaded them, took them over. So I think when you ask me the what I see is happening here, that's what I see happening. I see us starting other huge wars to get out of our, you know, our our budget crisis or our recession, whatever you want to call it. And and my only response to that is is uh. I, I I completely agree with you, and I would even say that it's in some ways it's more insidious than 1930s Germany because people we we openly admit now that we torture and indefinitely detain people, and we make rationalizations for it. Um, I don't even think Nazi Germany openly admitted things like that, or or the sense that we are experiencing what you're describing right now, but most people are asleep to it. Most people just want to look away and not think of our government, what it's doing in other countries, um, which, you know, probably has some similarities to the German population in the thirties too. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. 
I think so completely. I think there were um, a lot of people there that were just brainwashed like Americans are here. Um, by the way, I can stand a little longer. My, uh, my partner is doing my appointment, so you need me to. Um, but, yeah, it's a matter of being brainwashed. I mean, we're brainwashed in the U.S. with the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, America the Beautiful sung in every baseball game and the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, you're taught that, you know, God loves the USA and it's the greatest country in the world. And people don't want to hear that it's not. And Obama winning the Nobel Peace Prize, and I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's it, all I mean, disgusting, really. I, I mean, don't know least, why the U.S. is better than any other country in in any way. Yeah, I mean, at least under Bush, there seemed to be a substantial amount of people that understood this creeping fascism that was coming upon us, and and now it seems like the most vocal Obama critics are very hyperbolic in their in their criticisms, almost so much so that it almost discredits that kind of view that our country is turning fascistic. Um, you know, when you say things like Obama is a communist and he wasn't, you know, he's a, he's a Manchurian candidate from Kenya. Um, I don't know. I mean, which, what is your take on that? I know you said that you don't think any truth movement has any chance of, of no, making headway, but <laughs> what's your opinion um, on the, on the, the way the tea party chooses to, to kind of milk the, you know, Obama is Hitler thing. You know, I don't, I don't know what I really think of that, other than I think it's more than just Obama. You have nearly every politician falling in line for this sort of thinking and doing nothing about it. I mean, these are the people that could change the country. You know, even if you had one senator up there filibustering every, you know, fraudulent bill or spending bill or increasing the military budget or just speaking his mind, you could make so many waves. But there's not even one senator that will do that. Why is that? I mean, you have to ask, are these people being paid off or are they being threatened? Because Probably there's too both. many that just <laughs> fall directly in line here, you know, and you know, we're going to do this the same way as the last administration. And doesn't matter. Party lines don't matter. Right. And, uh, you know, no one's going to try and stop the war. No one's going to cut off military funding. None of that. Every single one of them, except for a few, you know, there's a few congressmen, but they don't really have that much authority, you know, right. like Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. But zero senators. It's Why amazing. is that? Yeah, it's amazing. Well, there there was one. I mean, the only senator that I can think of who was pretty vocal about civil liberties and stuff, he just got elected out of office, and, and, his, and Russ Feingold is who I'm talking about. And yeah. It's, it's kind From of a shame that— Minnesota, I think. Yeah. And it's yeah. and it's a shame that he's gone because I mean he was in a sense you know the last the last person in the Senate to actually object to the Patriot Act and right but if it was me and I was in the Senate I would do more I would filibuster it yeah you know where it couldn't even come up for a vote but why aren't they doing that you know I guess they'll be blasted in the media for being unpatriotic or whatever and who knows what but um. Military industrial complex is robbing the country blind. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. For no too. reason. Yeah. For no reason. And I think I think as our you know, we can't manage an empire on debt and I think that I agree with you that we're we're going to get desperate and we're just gonna keep going after these countries and it's something you know, there's gonna be a, a breaking point. Um and it it is really terrifying to think about it. As much as you can try to educate people, I d I don't think that we're gonna get to the point where we can stop it. 
Yeah, well, we could, but it would take masses of people coming out and overthrowing the government. And I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that's what it would take. Right. It won't. It's not going to happen through the ballot box because, uh, you know, you vote a Republican in, then you vote a Democrat in, and mm-hmm. they, the war they still go. back out on all their campaign promises, and they vote the same way as everyone had in the last, you know, 12 years mm-hmm. since Bush was in or whatever. So uh, that, that's not going to work. It's been tried a couple times already, you mm-hmm. know, switching who's in authority from Republicans, Republicans to Democrats, and it doesn't work. It's almost like they Either want way. us to think that that's like the only power that we have and and just to accept like, well, the wars are just that we just need these wars because we just, you know, all we can do is vote for the lesser of two evils. And I just hate that dichotomy. It's so overplayed. It's like, I don't want to support evil, period. I mean, I'm sorry. Right. And really, there are no legitimate third parties. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and, you know, I, I just don't see it being accomplished through the ballot box. It's gone too far. and. Mm-hmm. Not even I'm not even talking about the voting machines. I could get into that too. <laughs> but uh, you know, when there's an important election, well, the voting machines can be rigged too. Right. So, you now this country's gone too far. I I don't think it can be repaired without mm-hmm. a big war of some kind. Well, Kurt, any last words, statements, and then where can people find out more about your work and just about this case? Well, anything I have to say or any important articles I put on, especially my wife's blog, but I post on there, Haskell, my last name, family, blogspot, I'm sorry, haskellfamily.blogspot.com. And, uh, you know, you can go on there for updates. I'll be putting more updates as I go to more hearings. The next one is on April 7th, and the trial starts October 4th. So I'll be at least in the audience watching, if not involved in some way. Um, But my last thought, um, if there's anyone listening that doesn't believe me, go do some research. I I have a lot of evidence, even more than what I said here today, to back up what I'm saying and just keep an open mind Mm -hmm. instead of just listening to what your government tells you. So I guess those, those would be my final comments. Thank you so much, Kurt, for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate uh, your time and, and all your input. It's been really, uh, really great talking to you. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Thank Kurt. You. Sure. Thanks so much for listening. Go to MediaRoots.org and donate if you want to keep these broadcasts going because this project's entirely grassroots. Thanks so much. Thanks.